Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things you interact with every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on-site where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. Today, we're talking about onshoring critical industries, including life sciences and biomanufacturing. The COVID pandemic was a shock to global systems, and many countries scrambled to get adequate supplies and vaccines. Now, governments and the private sector are investing large amounts in research and development, and there's a push to house more of these facilities in the U.S. and the U.K., We're joined by two guests with deep expertise in this space. Lowell Barron is a managing partner and chief investment officer for Brookfield's real estate group, who's been focused on real estate investments globally for the company for 18 years. And we also have Tom Ragno, the founder and principal of King Street Properties, the largest privately held life science real estate business in the U.S. They'll tell us how onshoring looks for these industries, why it's so important, and where the opportunities are. Later in the episode, we'll also be speaking with Brookfield's Devin Barnwell, a managing partner who leads logistics investments for Brookfield. She'll discuss how this burgeoning focus area intersects with onshoring strategies. We started with Tom telling us a bit more about King Street and its relationship with Brookfield. We have seven and a half million square feet of existing assets and assets under development. We're based right here in Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm sitting. And more importantly, in September of 2021, Brookfield made a major investment in our company, and we created a joint venture to pursue opportunities, which we're very excited about the intelligence and might of Brookfield behind us as we expand our company. Tom, it would be helpful if you could frame for us the onshoring opportunity as it relates to your industry. The way I think about it, the industry is you have life science, which is the broader category, and that includes drug development and medicine making, medical devices, diagnostic devices, and the like. Most of our portfolio buildings services the drug discovery industry, and there are really two components to the medicine making process. The first, I think everybody's familiar with it, it's research and development. So those are the laboratory buildings, which are actually a mix of laboratory space and office space that are in the major life science markets in the U.S. and in Europe. There's only about 170 million square feet of landlord-owned facilities in the U.S., and two-thirds of that is in those four prime markets, which are Boston, the San Francisco Bay Area, San Diego, and the Research Triangle in North Carolina. We own buildings, assets in all four of those markets and in New York City as well, which we think is going to be a developing market. So that's research and development. And then there's the manufacturing of the drugs. And that's a 
market where the real estate is, we think, vastly undersupplied. Before we get to the issue of being undersupplied, I'm wondering, what do you think the potential market is in terms of lab buildings and things like that? The long trend is going to be unbelievably good because of the aging population and new medical modalities. If you go back in time, most drugs were what we call small molecule drugs. They were chemical compounds. Big pharma companies owned those drugs and controlled them pretty carefully during their patent period. And those drugs could typically be manufactured in corporate-owned facilities with a lower cost. Today, you're really seeing the industrial revolution of the 21st century. The Human Genome Project, which was an unusually collaborative effort that took place between 1990 to 2003, scientists from all over the world collaborated to try to map the human genome, essentially figure out what the DNA structure was of the human species. The first mapping was in 2001, and that's led to a vast increase in what we call large molecule therapies, what everybody else would call biopharma or biotech. That process really shined a scientific flashlight on a range of new treatments for all kinds of diseases. Given all the progress in this sector over the past few decades, I asked Lowell and Tom why there is such an undersupply of space for this crucial scientific work. If I think back to how we considered entering the sector because of the trends that we just talked about, our first inclination was to do it ourselves. We've been in the office business around the world for many decades. And so the question was, couldn't we just repurpose some of our office expertise? Isn't building lab space, for example, no different than developing office? And the answer to that really is the answer to your question, which is we realized this wasn't the same as being an office developer or owner operator. This was something that required the very specific knowledge of exactly what these types of life science tenants need, what exactly you're building for them, exactly in what locations in the market, having the right relationships with those tenants. All of that creates a moat to being able to get into the sector. And I think that's the reason you saw for a period of time and continue to see this undersupply in this space because there's just not enough expertise out there and it takes time to create that expertise. That, of course, is what attracted us to the partnership we now have with King Street because it's so specialized. There weren't too many groups we could turn to to create this partnership. And we're, we're really fortunate we've been able to do it with Tom and with his team. Yeah, I'd also say this. I mentioned Human Genome Project 2003. There was another major advance in 2012 with gene editing for Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, now Nobel Prize winner for CRISPR, which is a gene editing technique. Those things created an explosion. Now, it takes a while for the R&D part of the process to happen. So the manufacturing demand didn't come right away because developing a drug is a 10-year process. If you think about those major milestones, you really had people starting to apply those ideas 2016, 17, 18. Now they're starting to get to the point where they have the manufacturing need. And that then combined with the manufacturing need for the old way of making drugs, because we were doing a lot of that overseas and we want to repatriate it. That's why now you have the surging demand. Our experience so far in this space, our life cycle so far started really with a focus on 
understanding stabilized research and development buildings. That's really how we got into the space and watching the fact that there just wasn't enough of this space and seeing how rents were moving up very quickly. The demand from our tenants was more than what we could offer within the buildings we owned. That's really what led us to understanding that from an R&D perspective, there was a great development business. And that was the next leg of our journey, which is what led us to King Street, as well as to other businesses that we acquired across the UK, where we found that there was an ability to develop these customized buildings and earn very high returns, very high yields for doing that development work. That was really stage two. And then stage three is what we're talking about today, which is getting into the manufacturing, the biomanufacturing that is still a space that you don't see too much competition. It's really cutting edge and being able to take the expertise that came from stage one and stage two and really see it in very few players. That's really what's the most exciting part of all of it and why we're so attracted to it. As we were doing this, even on the R&D side, we kept looking around to see where was the competition? Why weren't other people doing this? And the only answer I could ever come up with was they knew what they knew, and they knew this was a big lift, and they were making good real estate investments in the things that they knew. So why try to figure this out? Now, that's all changed, and there's lots of people trying to figure it out now, although many not successfully. And I think we'll see a fair number of people come and go relatively quickly. It's taken us 20 plus 20 years to develop the body of knowledge we have. And that's not something that anybody can really get very easily. And if you could just talk a little bit about how your firm developed this expertise, because it is such a niche, especially. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Lauren. So I mentioned my business partner, Steve Lynch. He has been in the real estate business in Boston for 40 years, and he actually saw the whole birth of really the biotech industry in Boston. And Boston is pretty much the undisputed world headquarters now for this industry. I came into the scene and owned some properties in Cambridge in my previous life before founding King Street, where I was dealing with biotech companies and drug development companies. But it was on a much smaller scale, and it was a much more specialized class. And so we developed the expertise over time. And we always say, and Lowell's heard this before, we're in the life science real estate business. If you own a building or two, you're not in that business because the secret to it is your relationships with tenants. And our whole push to do pathway and into biomanufacturing, we're not that smart. <laughs> it came from observing what our tenants needed. Our tenants were putting manufacturing spaces into buildings that really weren't suited for them, but they were so desperate for the space. I asked Tom for an example of what that kind of mismatch looks like. Sure. So we have a company called Wave Life Sciences, and they occupy one of our buildings in Cambridge, and they ended up occupying one in Lexington as well. They were developing a drug that they needed to go into clinical trials with. They ended up renting space in a three-story building that we had. And in a normal biomanufacturing building, you'd have very high clear heights, 30 feet, say. And you'd have the ability to put a mezzanine or a second floor in where you would put mechanical equipment to create the kind of clean space that you need in the manufacturing space. Wave ended up going into a building that was really built for R&D, and they took a large portion of what was second floor space, 
the rent was quite costly because we had anticipated people would put their employees up there to be doing research and development. They actually took that space and put all their mechanical equipment on it and still paid the same. So to me, that looked like a desperate thing because they couldn't find what we're now developing at Pathway. They couldn't find that product in the marketplace. So they went into an R&D multi-story building, which is not where you'd typically want to do the manufacturing. Let's look at the national interest response. How are governments supporting this or what kind of funding are they putting into these efforts? And how does that combine with the private sector investments? By our count, the government's earmarked about $60 billion in 2023, and it's in a range of agencies, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, among many others. The pandemic exposed an issue in the supply chain, and there's congressional testimony that says that 80% of active pharmaceutical ingredients, so the basic building blocks to make drugs, comes from China. The President's Council on Science and Technology determined that this was a national security risk. And they also, at that time, identified an undersupply of specifically biomanufacturing facilities because these new drugs have to be made in a very different way. And Lowell, let me bring you in here. How does this play into Brookfield's overall strategy when it comes to real estate? Thanks, Lauren. What Tom's talking about, this is how we think about real estate generally. We look at what the trends are and what's changing in the way the built world is being used to figure out where to focus our efforts. When it comes to some of the life science and biomanufacturing that Tom's talking about, we for a long time have been tracking the trends. Aging of population, as an example, in the US, the 65 plus cohort is growing at 4% a year for the next 20 years. But that's something that's happening around the world. When you combine the growth in that population with technology that's bringing much more customized creation of medicines, you get to this point where you clearly need more of these types of facilities. That's how we think about investing. And it allows us to then identify groups like King Street and others that have the expertise that can allow us to then invest in a pretty smart way into this demand that we see coming over the next couple of decades. I'm just curious, when you think about real estate investing, pharmaceutical research is not really something that jumps into most people's minds. How did you guys identify this as an opportunity and what makes it unique as you look at this sector? We're looking at private equity opportunities and infrastructure opportunities around the world. It really all comes down to the same thing, which is identifying the trends that are shaping demand around the world and how that impacts infrastructure, the opportunities to invest in corporations, but also impacts what the opportunities are to invest in real estate. That led us to identifying this long demand tailwind that was coming. We were able to see some of it through a number of our investments early on, where we acquired companies that may have had some interests in life science, gave us a firsthand seat to see what was happening there. We particularly like the opportunities to invest in what we consider these emerging real estate asset classes that have these strong tailwinds, because often there's a lot less competition in those sectors. It requires really specialized expertise. And it's something that not everyone else is able to identify to your point. You really have to have the large platform that we have to be able to find these things and to take advantage of investing in them. And given what we've been through in the last few years, I'm wondering, did COVID or did the pandemic have any influence on that strategy? Yeah, we look at COVID almost as a time that really accelerated a lot of trends that existed. 
So many of the trends we have been tracking before COVID, things like changing consumer preferences, the desires for experiences and flexibility, the technology that was changing a lot of the ways people were accessing the things that they needed or wanted, all of that accelerated through COVID. And it just made it so a lot of the things we identified that we wanted to invest in just became that much more obvious over the last couple of years. Tom, let's talk a little bit about biomanufacturing in specific and how the effort to bring the supply chain closer, if you will, is affecting strategies in that sector. Sure. I think the first thing, as they talked about the Human Genome Project, is there's outside of the government uh, question of repatriation of medicine making. There already was surging demand for this type of space, and we saw it in our own portfolio. One of the things about biomanufacturing and about the drugs that are made, they're incubated in a living organism. And they're very more complex than those previous drugs that were based on chemistry. So the idea, proof of concept happens at the R&D lab. And the scale-up is very complicated. So my partner, who is an Irish-American guy, he likes to use the example of mashed potatoes. I grew up in an Italian-American household, so I'm going to use spaghetti sauce. And we always like to say, (laughs) if you had six people coming over for dinner and you made spaghetti sauce, you'd have a pretty good idea how to do it. But if you were making spaghetti sauce for 100,000 people, that might get complicated and your proportions might be off a little bit. So it's very similar in that the scale up from doing it in a test lab to the facility is very complicated. And there needs to be a lot of interaction between the people on the manufacturing side, along with the folks who are on the research and development side. So we think that you need to have proximity between those two. The facilities themselves are extremely complicated. So what we did was we developed a separate product, essentially, that we call Pathway. And this is the first in the world multi-tenant, purpose-built biomanufacturing campuses. It's really a canvas for the biomanufacturing process because each company's is a little bit different. There are some basic building bucks, but each is a little bit different. I asked Tom how this approach is helping tenants outside of the biomedical field. One of the interesting things, we developed, call it a box, that canvas that I was talking to you about for the biomanufacturing world. Well, lo and behold, clean energy companies are presenting themselves to use the buildings because they have a lot of the similar characteristics in terms of energy needs, need for air, loading, etc., We did a major lease with a company called Commonwealth Fusion, who's a nuclear fusion company, that they're using one of our biomanufacturing buildings for a factory to create and make magnets that they use in their nuclear fusion process. We recently had a ribbon cutting and Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm was there, along with both U.S. senators from Massachusetts. And the government is strongly interested in this. And we're now seeing demand from these kinds of companies as well. We wouldn't have expected that crossover, but it appears to be happening. So, Lowell, let me ask you to dust off your crystal ball here and look 10 years down the road. How do you see these trends playing out? What is onshoring going to look like a decade from now? I think we're honestly in the very, very early innings when it comes to biomanufacturing and particularly onshoring of all that goes into biomanufacturing. We haven't even touched really on supply chains and the continued need and desire for security domestically. 
Tom's talking a lot about the US and that's really where he's focused, but we're seeing the same thing if you go into markets within Western Europe. So we would expect to see quite a bit of a build out of this sector. I think it becomes a very institutional asset class that people will recognize the strength of the business over these next couple of decades. The other thing that's interesting about it too is if you just go to the next level of growth, so if you think about these really customized research facilities and manufacturing facilities that are going to be developed, maybe not in urban Boston, but you start to see a push out to suburban or you see it in Raleigh-Durham or some of these other markets, is what's the impact to those locations? And do those markets and locations become really great places to invest generally in real estate? We think about it more broadly than just exactly the buildings that we're talking about, but what about the housing that you need? or the logistics or the hospitality or retail assets that are going to be needed in those markets. So all of that becomes a really good opportunity for a real estate investor like ourselves, who has the expertise across all these uses to be able to take advantage of. I'm wondering as an economic driver that does create all these additional uses or demands for real estate, how do you see the life sciences, biotech, biopharma manufacturing How does that stack up against other cutting edge industries like tech or clean energy or things like that? It has a lot of the same very strong demand tailwinds you can see in those other sectors, but it's probably actually even a little bit easier to underwrite because ultimately probably one of the biggest demand drivers here is the growth of the population that is being served the most. And that's the older age cohort, which is growing at a pace well ahead of by multiples overall population growth. You can really underwrite that in a way that's pretty mathematical and feel very good about that demand that will continue to grow. Tom, I didn't give you a chance to answer the crystal ball question, but what are you most excited about that you see coming down the pike? Right now, there's, I think, 27 approved bio drugs by the FDA. There are 1,200 in clinical trials. Not all of them are going to work, but some of them will. And that 27 number that we have today is going to increase geometrically. 2022 was the second highest year for venture capital funding for biopharma. The venture capital firms that are the most involved in the business are stockpiling cash. They still have a strong appetite. There are going to be winners and losers, but I think they believe there are a lot of good ideas still to come that they want to be able to fund. So we really feel like we made a very good investment in research and development facilities, but we really do feel like the manufacturing is where it's going to be for the next 15 to 20 years. The bottom line, which is a great thing to be involved with, is some of these long-standing diseases, they're going to be solved. There are actually going to be cures and treatments that are going to help humankind at the end of the day. And that's what's exciting to me, the fact that we can be helping that happen. The onshoring we've been talking about in the life sciences and biomanufacturing sectors has a logistics component to it as well. To round out the picture, I spoke with Devin Barnwell, one of Brookfield's top logistics experts. My name is Devin Barnwell. I am the global portfolio manager for Brookfield's logistics sector. I oversee a portfolio that has grown from just under 20 million square feet in 2019. We currently sit at over 140 million square feet globally. As part of my job, I travel to all of the cities throughout the globe where Brookfield holds logistics properties and 
meet with the teams and ensure that we are building, we are buying, and we are operating properties in a best-in-class manner, but also that fit that particular region and the needs for how to operate a logistics company, whether it's in Korea or Sao Paulo or the United States. I think it would be helpful to explain what we mean when we talk about logistics, just for people that aren't familiar with the term. I actually get that question a lot. Like, why don't you call it warehouse? Why don't you call it industrial? And we think about it, it's not a warehouse where you store goods. It's not just an industrial facility. When we talk about logistics, it's the movement of goods. It's the movement of products that enable the economy to keep moving. So tell us a little bit about logistics and how that fits into the overall picture here. Logistics was a growing industry prior to COVID. But what we saw in the pandemic was an acceleration of trends that really pushed the supply chains and onshoring and all these themes that we were talking within the logistics group to the broader scale, things that you see in headlines that were never really talked about by normal people. And then as we saw the world work through these shutdowns, essential businesses kept moving. There was a significant impact on global supply chains. And that's where people started to take notice because no longer could you get what you ordered on Amazon the next day. I always talk about toilet paper. People remember that they couldn't get toilet paper. And when people couldn't get what they needed every single day, all of a sudden they wanted to talk about logistics. All of a sudden we were the cool kids. And prior to that, no one really cared where your stuff came from. The disruptions that we saw resulted in longer term effects. Tenants, whether they be retailers or manufacturers, have to have this resiliency in their supply chains to ensure that they have the inventory and the materials that they need and when they need it. And it's exacerbated by a structural change in how people buy goods and a continued pressure to get people the things that they need, faster delivery. I have children, teenage daughters, and they're shocked when I tell them that something they ordered cannot be delivered the next day. <laughs> this demographic has come to believe that you order something and then you have it. And then you factor in that last mile is the most expensive. Retailers have to consider how they're going to optimize their delivery channels to get goods to the buyer the same day, sometimes within hours. And then you layer in things like curbside pickup, grocery shopping, shopping for cars online, which is something that's fascinating to think about, and having that inventory near consumers, no matter how they're shopping. One of the interesting things that Tom talked about was a clustering effect in markets like Boston and San Francisco and for life sciences. And that's fascinating because those are very dense demographics of people. And when you have an industry like biomanufacturing taking a lot of that production space for manufacturing of pharma and life sciences, you're taking warehouse and distribution space out of production. And so what we've seen over the years is a lack of land or a lack of supply of warehouses that just exacerbates this issue of not being able to get goods to people. I'm wondering, how does this affect strategy going forward in terms of real estate, in terms of warehousing? It seems like some of the changes we've seen may be permanent. They were not just a blip during COVID. We have this great rethinking of how all these things should work. Yeah, so a lot of it is permanent. And, and that, back to the e-commerce boom or the acceleration of the trend that we saw during COVID, that's not going away. People were forced to start using this new way of buying things. My parents were not big online shoppers until they were the most at risk during COVID and they had to adapt and they learned to online grocery shop. And those things are not going away. So we will see this continue to evolve. I think what you'll see is different groups taking a different look at how to accomplish their best optimization of how to get the goods or the materials to where they need to be. And when you look at onshoring 
it's interesting because it's not just goods to consumers. It's all the pieces and the components of different manufacturing to Tom's points on life sciences and what you need for pharmaceutical production. You see the same thing in semiconductors. Semiconductors are used in everything from a washing machine to missile defense systems. How do we ensure that we have the semiconductor chips that are needed to produce cars and produce everyday things for people? That was another one we saw during COVID appliances. I was renovating a house. I couldn't get a washing machine. It took nine months. And that was mind boggling to me because a washing machine has a semiconductor chip. I was in the same boat. I was struggling to find a new washing machine as well. So I can relate to that. It's fascinating. (laughs) So what's the most surprising thing you've encountered in your job? I think just the fact that culturally and legally and regulatory, all the regions are so very different. But it all boils down to the same thing. We see the same tenants. We see the same needs. And it's very translatable across what we do. Sometimes I have to battle that a bit and explain to people, no, I've seen this before. Here's an example I saw in Sao Paulo, or here's something we saw in France. And then once you can share that with the teams and explain to them that their situation might feel different, but we're all very interconnected. And despite deglobalization, the world is very much still connected. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Lowell, Tom, and Devin for sharing their perspectives. On our next episode, we'll discuss new trade routes, the need for supply chain resilience, and transport assets like roads, rail, ports, and export terminals. Audiation.